This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is the true meaning of Easter. In the first half, Michael L. Dunn shares his address, The Miracle of Forgiveness. Then in the second half, President Henry B. Eyring speaks on the power of deliverance. The New Testament writer, Luke, describes a fascinating scene from the Savior's life where Jesus, sitting at meat in the house of Simon the Pharisee, was approached by a woman who was widely known to have been a sinner. Her behavior as she approached the Savior reveals that she must have had some previous interaction with Him of a very personal and life-changing nature. For she tearfully knelt and kissed his feet, bathing his feet with her humble tears before wiping them dry with her tresses and applying precious ointment as a servant might do for their master. Simon, aware of the woman's past indiscretions, inwardly reproved Jesus for allowing a sinner to approach him in such a manner. Discerning this unrighteous judgment on the part of Simon, Christ artfully rebuked him and then, speaking to the woman, said something truly wondrous. Thy sins are forgiven. Indeed, a miracle had occurred, a miracle more powerful and momentous than the changing of water into wine or the healing of a leper, a miracle tantamount to the raising of one from the grave. For verily, a precious daughter of our Heavenly Father had in very fact been born again and saved from spiritual death. On hearing this account, one cannot help but ask, as did the Book of Mormon writer Enos, when he heard a similar declaration of forgiveness following a long and tearful night of anguished soul-searching and prayerful pleading. How is it done? Today I would like to speak to you of what Spencer W. Kimball called the miracle of forgiveness. Two weeks ago, I was released as bishop after six years of service, having also served as bishop previously in another ward and as a student branch president prior to that. One of the most marvelous things about serving as a bishop or branch president is sitting in private council with individual members of your congregation and discussing their concerns relating to their personal worthiness and their standing before God. For it is during these sacred times that a bishop receives a large measure of the inspiration and understanding that will come to him by virtue of his calling as a judge in Israel. And I can attest that at such times I have been given to understand more fully the role of the Savior and His Atonement in our Heavenly Father's plan and the truly miraculous nature of forgiveness. To fully understand this miracle, we must contemplate the grand and glorious plan of salvation authored by our Father in Heaven before we came to this earth 
We lived as spirits with our Heavenly Father and our elder brother, Jesus Christ. In that premortal realm, a grand council was called, and we were presented with our Heavenly Father's plan, allowing our further progression. We do not know all the details of that council, but from the scriptures and the writings of Latter-day Prophets, we can imagine how it might have transpired. We were told of a new world, this earth, where we would come to receive a physical body. In coming to this earth, we would not retain a remembrance of our pre-earth life. Rather, we would be given the opportunity to be tested and tried that we might learn by our own experience to choose good over evil. In this council, the Father told us that there were laws and ordinances that we would need to obey and receive in order to prepare ourselves to return to live with Him. We were also told that great blessings would come through obedience to each of the commandments, whereas negative consequences, or punishments, if you will, would be the result of violation of God's laws. It was explained to us that God would give to each of us the light of Christ or the ability to discern between right and wrong. He would also reveal to us His will through prophets and apostles. Thus, the Book of Mormon prophet Lehi taught that men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil, and the law is given unto men. Each of us understood the necessity of this earth life, but we also knew that this would be a difficult test, and each of us would undoubtedly stumble along the way and transgress the laws of God, placing us in a situation where we must be subject to the prescribed punishment. We understood that one of the punishments for sin was to be cut off from God's presence and to be halted in our eternal progression. I can imagine that this potential outcome of the plan would have been very troubling for us to contemplate. And in fact, this aspect of the plan was so concerning that one-third of our spirit siblings rebelled against this plan and followed Satan, who rose up with great swelling words claiming that he could save us all and none would be lost nor suffer. The remaining two-thirds of us, however, were willing to accept God's plan. Why? Because it included the possibility for change and growth and improvement through repentance. This gift of mercy would be made possible through a Savior, one who would come to this earth, as we read in Lectures on Faith, to do the following. First, this Savior would descend in suffering below that which any other man or woman would suffer. Second, he would be subject to temptation beyond that which any other man or woman would be subjected. Third, despite this suffering and temptation, he would keep the law of God in every detail and live a sinless life, thus showing that it is within the power of man to keep the law and remain without sin. 
and also that by him a righteous judgment might come upon all flesh, that all who walk not in the law of God may justly be condemned by the law and have no excuse for their sins. Finally, the Savior's perfection would also place him in a position to carry out his ultimate responsibilities, which would be, first, to atone for the sins of the world by taking upon him the entire burden of the prescribed punishment for the sins and transgressions of all mankind, thus redeeming them from the first spiritual death, and second, to voluntarily be put to death by those for whom he suffered, that he might rise again from the tomb, thus releasing the bands of physical death. Can you imagine such a responsibility? It was utterly and completely beyond our ability to serve in this capacity. And yet there was one, even Jesus Christ, who humbly stepped forward and said, Father, here am I. Yes, it was Christ who stepped forward in the premortal council and accepted the role of Savior. He was the only one who could have filled that role. And we need to know and understand that each and every one of us in the premortal world accepted Christ as our Savior and Redeemer. And in so doing, we accepted the terms or conditions of His Atonement. Given the importance of covenants in God's plan, and knowing that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, I believe that it is entirely reasonable to suggest that in the premortal world, Christ covenanted with us that He would fulfill this awesome responsibility to be our Savior. And we, in turn, covenanted with Him that we would do whatever He asked in return. It is important for us to understand the need for a Savior. This is made abundantly clear in the Book of Mormon, especially in Alma, chapter 42, where we are taught that through disobedience all mankind is fallen and subject to the demands of justice, which consigns us to be forever cut off from God's presence. To paraphrase, God is a perfect being and cannot lie. If He decreed a punishment for disobedience to His laws, including being cut off from His presence, such punishment must be meted out every time the law is broken. Otherwise, God would not be truthful. Likewise, this punishment must be meted out to any and all who are disobedient, or God would not be just. Fortunately, there is a means of providing mercy, which is difficult to fully comprehend. It is in part that the demands of the law can be satisfied by one who is without sin voluntarily receiving the full and total punishment on behalf of the disobedient offender, in which case we become subject to the demands of He who suffered for us. And in fact, it is only in this manner 
that we may return to our Father's presence to dwell. We cannot do it by suffering the punishment for our own sins. We can only do it by complying with the premortal covenant we made to accept Christ as our Savior and to fulfill our end of the agreement. And so we might ask, what are the terms that we agreed to? What is it that Christ asks of us in exchange for His suffering on our behalf? In Doctrine and Covenants section 19, Christ tells us, I have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Simply put, Christ asks that we repent in exchange for His suffering. Christ commands that we repent in exchange for His suffering. And equally important, we agreed to repent in exchange for Christ's suffering. Repentance. What is repentance? How do we repent? What does repentance entail? We get some insight into repentance by studying the law of sacrifice given to Moses as a type to point forward to the coming atonement of Christ. In Leviticus we read, If a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord and lie unto his neighbor or take a thing by violence or find that which was lost and lie concerning it and swear falsely, Then it shall be, because he hath sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or the lost thing which he found. He shall even restore it in the principle, and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth. And he shall bring a trespass offering unto the Lord, a ram without blemish, out of the flock, for a trespass offering unto the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord, and it shall be forgiven him for anything of all that he hath done in trespassing therein. Here we clearly see some important elements of repentance. He or she who sinned was to acknowledge their wrongdoing make restitution for the wrong they had done, and confess their sins to the priest. They were also to make an offering to the Lord through the priest, which offering was to be a ram without blemish. This sacrifice, as we read in Moses, was in similitude of the sacrifice of the perfect Christ. Thus, the sacrifice was required to be a male, and without blemish. The requirements of Christ and the elements of repentance have changed very little from the time of Moses to our day. We are still required to acknowledge our faults, 
to make restitution and to confess our sins to the priest or bishop in this case. In Doctrine and Covenants section 58 we read, By this ye may know that if a man or woman repenteth of their sins, behold, they will confess them and forsake them. With respect to confession, it would be appropriate to consider the situation of Enos mentioned earlier. I have observed that many Latter-day Saints erroneously confuse Enos's circumstances with their own and in their misunderstanding attempt to avoid involving their bishop or other ecclesiastical leader in the process of their confession and subsequent repentance. By way of illustration, one young man who was anxious to serve a mission came to my home late one evening and poured out his heart to me in confession. He had been up in the hills praying for forgiveness. In his mental and spiritual turmoil over his sins, his mind had been drawn back to the story of Enos, and at length he convinced himself that he would seek forgiveness directly from the Lord in personal, fervent prayer, even if he, like Enos, had to pray all night. The young man prayed long, hard, fervently, and tearfully, with much energy, anguish, and humility. Yet he did not receive a witness that his sins had been forgiven. Rather, he received an overwhelming impression that he should go confess his sins to his bishop. Soon the young man had properly confessed all the transgressions from his past to an authorized representative of the Lord, and together they had established a plan to help him put his spiritual life in order. In the fully organized, restored Church of Jesus Christ, which has a complete line of authorized priesthood leaders in every ward, branch, stake, district, or mission, complete repentance of serious sins always involves confession to the proper ecclesiastical leader in addition to humble prayer to our Heavenly Father. A corollary question is, why would this young man, or anyone for that matter, seek to omit this important step in the repentance process? After many such experiences, I have observed that Satan preys on people's great sense of fear regarding the potential outcome of such a confession. Most members of the Church also admire and respect their bishop, and the last thing they want is for their bishop to know who they really are and to feel disappointed in them. It shouldn't surprise you that your bishop already knows who you are. A precious child of God whose eternal worth is beyond measure. And rather than feeling disappointed, the overwhelming feelings that pour into a bishop's heart at these times are ones of gratitude and love. For this my brother or sister was dead and is alive again 
and was lost and is found. The only time a bishop feels disappointed is when they learn that someone failed to take advantage of the opportunity to cast the shackles of sin at Christ's feet and to walk out of the office freed from the heavy oppression of Satan's grasp. But to return to the pattern of repentance outlined in the passage from Leviticus, in addition to confessing our sins and making restitution, we are also still required to make a sacrificial offering to the Lord, but an offering of a different nature. In the Book of Mormon, we read the account where the resurrected Lord, having only recently offered himself up as the ultimate sacrifice for sin, spoke to the Nephites on the American continent. To them he said, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The scriptures concerning my coming are fulfilled. And as many as have received me, to them have I given to become the sons of God. And even so will I, to as many as shall believe on my name. For behold, by me redemption cometh, and in me is the law of Moses fulfilled. And ye shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood. Yea, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away. For I will accept none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. And ye shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. This offering of a broken heart and a contrite spirit is, in my mind, perhaps the most crucial and critical aspect of repentance. For it is this offering which indicates the true condition of our souls. How do we know if we have a broken heart and a contrite spirit? I believe that this is exemplified by one who comes forward willingly of their own volition and confesses their sins to any whom they might have offended and the bishop, if necessary, but without any pretense or effort to make excuses. A person who has a broken heart and a contrite spirit understands the significance of their act and wants to do anything and everything within their power to set it right. In coming forward and humbly and meekly confessing, it is as if they present before the Lord and offer up on the altar for all to see the natural man that is in them with all of his weakness and depravity. They seek not to hide their faults, but openly acknowledge their faults and humbly seek forgiveness. I believe that this is what is meant by putting off the natural man who is an enemy to God. For by humbly and contritely offering the natural man up on the altar of confession as a sacrifice, if you will, we rid ourselves of him and become new creatures through Christ. Christ then becomes our spiritual father 
or the father of our spiritual rebirth. For it is through his atonement that this is made possible. This helps us understand the imagery used by Isaiah, who said, speaking of the Savior, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, then he shall see his seed. Then he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. I cannot read this scripture without picturing in my mind's eye my wife, Holly, after having struggled through the intense and anguishing pain of childbirth, looking down at the product of her travail with tears of joy in her eyes. Our spiritual rebirth has come through the travail of Christ. As Abinadi taught, we, meaning all who have accepted his offering and met the requirements of repentance as part of the covenant of the Atonement, are his seed and Christ, in like manner, rejoices in the product of his travail. And again I ask, what is repentance? It is that we exercise faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ by confessing and forsaking our sins and offering up a sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit before the Lord. There is no superhuman feat or great thing that we must do to receive God's forgiveness. Unfortunately, many sometimes feel as did Naaman, captain of the host of Syria, who was smitten with leprosy. Naaman exercised sufficient faith to approach Elisha, the Lord's prophet, to seek a blessing. But when Elisha sent his servant to tell him that all he needed to do was to dip himself seven times in the river Jordan to be healed, Naaman left in anger feeling that it was too light a thing to be taken seriously. Fortunately, Naaman had a wise servant who asked, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Naaman did as his servant counseled and was healed. I have seen some individuals who have confessed and forsaken their sins with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and yet are unable to accept the forgiveness that comes through the Atonement. They, like Naaman, have sufficient faith to approach the bishop but feel that the Lord can't truly be willing to forgive them without their doing some great thing. They do not understand the miracle of forgiveness or the wonderful gift of grace that the Atonement is. Just how miraculous is the Atonement? So miraculous that a very clear type had to be given in the wilderness of Mount Hor to allow us to comprehend that just as those who exercised sufficient faith to look upon the brazen serpent were healed, even so, as many as should look upon the Son of God with faith 
having a contrite spirit, might live even unto that life which is eternal. Christ taught, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My yoke is easy, and my burden light. My brothers and sisters, we can't work off our sins. I repeat, we cannot work off our sins. It is only through Christ's atonement that we can be forgiven of our sins. It may be true that service to God and our fellow man can bring us to a point where we are able to exercise faith in Christ's atonement sufficient to be healed, primarily by making us more receptive to the Spirit and by helping those who are weak in the faith to have hope that maybe, just maybe, they might be found acceptable before the Lord. However, it is not our works that save us. For unless these works bring us to the point where we can look to Christ and accept His Atonement by meeting the demands of repentance, they truly avail us nothing. The same holds true for mortal suffering. Did not Christ say that He had suffered these things for all that they might not suffer? We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven by suffering for our own sins. We should clearly understand that Christ has already suffered and paid the price for all of our sins. It is a mistaken and misleading notion to think that Christ only suffered for the sins of which we repent. Book of Mormon prophets teach that Christ's Atonement was infinite, eternal, and all-encompassing. Christ's Atonement covered all sin, all transgression, all wrongdoing. And because He suffered for our sins, He can come before the Father in the Day of Judgment. On behalf of those who have repented of their sins, to offer intercession as expressed by Him in the following scripture. Listen to Him who is your advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before Him, saying, Father, behold the sufferings and death of Him who did no sin, in whom Thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of Thy Son, which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest, that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. So we should have faith. So we should have hope. So we should look to Christ and live. Remember the words of the Lord as spoken through his prophet Isaiah. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And also the words of the Lord spoken with great frankness to Joseph Smith in modern times. Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven. And I, the Lord, 
remember them no more. I bear witness of his incomprehensible love. He stands always with hands outstretched, waiting to receive us, that we may all look to Christ and live. By coming forward and receiving the miracle of forgiveness he offers is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is the true meaning of Easter. We've just heard from Michael L. Dunn. After the break, we'll return with President Henry B. Eyring for The Power of Deliverance. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is the true meaning of Easter. Next is President Henry B. Eyring, Second Counselor in the First Presidency of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled The Power of Deliverance. We are unique. No two of us are in exactly the same circumstances. We have not had identical experiences in the past, nor do we have a single vision of what happiness in the future would be for us. There will be people from every part of the United States and many countries of the world listening. Because of that variety, I have prayed to know what help God wants to offer us all. An answer finally came. So, today, I wish to bear witness of God's power of deliverance. At some point in our lives, we will all need that power. Every person living is in the midst of a test. We have been granted by God the precious gift of life. In a world created as a proving ground and a preparatory school, the tests we will face Their severity, their timing, and their duration will be unique for each of us. But two things will be the same for all of us. They are part of the design for mortal life. First, the tests at time will stretch us enough for us to feel the need for help beyond our own. And second, God in His kindness and wisdom has made the power of deliverance available to us. Now you might well ask, since Heavenly Father loves us, why does His plan of happiness include trials which could overwhelm us? It is because His purpose is to offer us eternal life. He wants to give us a happiness which is only possible as we live in glory with Him in families forever. And trials are necessary for us to be shaped and made fit to receive that happiness which comes as we qualify for the greatest of all the gifts of God. Today we will talk about some of the trials and the power of deliverance available to us as we pass through them. Now there are many different tests, but today we will speak of only three. For each, the power of deliverance is available not to escape the test, but to endure it well. Let's consider three. You may be in one of those tests now. 
The first is this. We can feel overcome with pain and sorrow at the death of a loved one. Second, each of us will struggle against fierce opposition, some of which comes from dealing with our physical needs and some from enemies. And third, each of us who live past the age of accountability will feel the need to escape from the effects of sin. Each of those tests can provide the opportunity for us to see that we need the power of God to help us pass them well. Some of you may feel the pressures of those tests now, but all of us will face them. It helps to know that they do not come from random chance or from a cruel God, and it helps to endure them well to know what wonderful reward lies ahead. The Prophet Joseph Smith needed and got that assurance when he was feeling deserted and nearly overwhelmed by persecution and contention among those he led and loved. My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. And then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. The Lord told Joseph that his trials would be for a small moment. That was true for him, and it will be for us as we compare the duration of any earthly trial with the endlessness of eternity. And the reward for passing the test well is to become worthy of eternal life. That assurance will help us when enemies defame us or doctors deliver a grim prognosis. That brings us to the first category of trials we will consider. The tragedy which death can bring. Life ends early for some and eventually for us all. Each of us will be tested by facing the death of someone we love. Just the other day I met a man I had not seen since his wife died. It was a chance meeting in a pleasant social holiday situation. He was smiling as he approached me. Remembering his wife's death, I phrased the common greeting very carefully. How are you doing? The smile vanished, his eyes became moist, and he said quietly, with great earnestness, I'm doing fine, but it's very hard. It is very hard, as most of you have learned, and all of us will sometime know. The hardest part of that test is to know what to do with the sorrow, the loneliness, and the loss which can feel as if a part of us has been lost. Grief can persist like a chronic ache, and for some there may be feelings of anger or injustice. The Savior's atonement and resurrection give Him the power to deliver us in such a trial. Through His experience, He came to know all our grief. He could have known it by the inspiration of the Spirit, but He chose instead to know by experiencing them for himself. This is the account. And behold, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers, she being a virgin, a precious and chosen vessel, who shall be overshadowed and conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, and bring forth a son, yea, even the Son of God. And he shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions.
and temptations of every kind, and this, that the word might be fulfilled which saith, He will take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people, and he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people, and he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy, according to the flesh, that he may know, according to the flesh, how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Good people around you will try to understand your grief at the passing of a loved one. They may feel grief themselves. But the Savior not only understands and feels grief, he feels your personal grief, which only you feel. And he knows you perfectly. He knows your heart. So he can know which of the many things you can do to invite the Holy Ghost to comfort you. He knows what will be best for you to get that blessing. He will know where it is best for you to start. Sometimes it will be to pray. It might be to go to comfort someone else. I know of a widow with a debilitating illness who was inspired to visit another widow. I wasn't there. But I am certain that the Lord inspired a faithful disciple to reach out to another and so was able to succor them both. There are many ways that the Savior can succor those who grieve, each fitted to them. But you can be sure that he can and that he will do it in the way that is best for those who grieve and for those around them. The constant when God delivers people from grief is people feeling childlike humility before God. A great example of the power of that faithful humility comes from the life of Job. You remember the account? Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Humility is one constant in those who are delivered from grief. The other, which Job had, is abiding faith in the power of the Savior's resurrection. We all will be resurrected. The loved one who dies will be resurrected as the Savior was. The reunion we will have with them will not be ethereal, but with bodies that need never die, nor age, nor become infirm. When the Savior appeared to his apostles after the resurrection, he not only reassured them in their grief, but all of us who might ever grieve. He reassured them and us this way, peace, be unto you. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. The Lord can inspire us to reach out for the power of deliverance from our grief in the way best suited to us. We can invite the Holy Ghost in humble prayer. We can choose to serve others for the Lord. We can testify of the Savior of his gospel and of his restoration of 
his church. We can keep his commandments. All of those choices invite the Holy Ghost. It is the Holy Ghost who can comfort us in the way suited to our need. And by the inspiration of the Spirit, we can have a testimony of the resurrection and a clear view of the glorious reunion ahead. I have felt that comfort as I looked down at the gravestone of someone I knew and loved and where I was sure I could sometime hold in my arms. I was not only delivered from grief, but filled with happy anticipation. Now, had that little person lived to maturity, she would have needed deliverance in another set of trials. She would have been tested to stay faithful to God through the physical and spiritual challenges which come to everyone. Even though the human body is a magnificent creation, keeping it functioning is a challenge that tests us all. For too many in the world, for instance, it is hard to find enough food and clean water to get through the next day. Everyone must struggle through illness and the effects of aging. Beyond the challenges of the body which come from within, we face the opposition of enemies from without. There is anger and hatred in the world. It's all around us. And some of us will at times be directed at us. As the Prophet Joseph learned, the opposition from without grew as he became more valuable to the Lord's purposes. The power of deliverance from these trials is in place. It works in the same way as the deliverance from the trial which comes facing the death of loved ones. Just as that deliverance is not always to have spared the life of a loved one, the deliverance from other trials may not be to remove them. It may not be to have perfect health or to have enemies vanish or ignore us. It may not give relief. He may not give relief until we develop faith to make choices which will bring the power of the Atonement to work in our lives. He does not require that out of indifference but out of love for us. Here is his warning. For behold, the Lord hath said, I will not succor my people in the day of their transgression, but I will hedge up their ways that they prosper not, and their doings shall be as a stumbling block before them. There is a guide for receiving the Lord's power of deliverance from opposition in life. It was given to Thomas B. Marsh, then the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He was in difficult trials, and then the Lord knew he would face more. Here was the counsel to him which I take for myself and offer you. Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand and give the answer to thy prayers. The Lord always wants to lead us to deliverance through our becoming more righteous. That requires repentance, and that takes humility. 
So the way to deliverance always requires humility in order for the Lord to be able to lead us by the hand where He wants to take us through our troubles and on to sanctification. You might make the mistake of assuming that illness, persecution, and poverty will be humbling enough. Ah, but they don't always produce by themselves the kind and degree of humility we will need to be rescued. Trials can produce resentment or discouragement. The humility you and I need to get the Lord to lead us by the hand comes from faith. It comes from faith that God really lives, that He loves us. And what He wants, hard as it may be, will always be the best for us. The Savior showed us that humility. You have read of how He prayed in the garden while He was suffering a trial on our behalf, beyond our ability to comprehend, to endure, or even for me to describe. You remember His prayer. Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He knew and trusted his Heavenly Father, the great Elohim. He knew that his Father was all-powerful and infinitely kind. The beloved Son asked for the power of deliverance to help him in words humble like those of a little child. The Father did not deliver the Son by removing the trial. He did not do that for our sakes and to allow the Savior to finish the mission He came to perform. Yet we can forever take courage and comfort from knowing of the help that the Father did provide. And there appeared an angel unto Him from heaven, strengthening Him. And being in agony, He prayed more earnestly, and His sweat was it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The Savior prayed for deliverance. What he was given was not an escape from the trial, but comfort enough to pass through it gloriously. His command to His disciples, who were themselves being tested, is a guide for us. We can determine to follow it. We can determine to rise up and pray in great faith and humility. And we can follow the command added in the book of Mark, Rise up, let us go. From this you have counsel for passing the physical and spiritual tests of life. You will need God's help after you have done all you can for yourself. So rise up and go, but get His help as early as you can, not waiting for the crisis to ask for in deliverance. The way that President Hinckley designed the Perpetual Education Fund, about which you have heard, is an example. It was intended for those who would find it hard to follow the Prophet's admonition to get an education. 
They would face difficulty, almost overwhelming challenges. But the plan required that they stand up and do all they could for themselves while being faithful to God enough to qualify for his help when the difficulties might become overwhelming. They had to make and follow their own plan to get the education and to find the means to finance it. They were required to attend institute and be faithful in the Church. I was able to see what happened. I saw miracles come to help those who went forward as if it all depended upon them but acted as if it would finally all depend on God's power of deliverance. In education and in life, you will face stumbling blocks and opposition. You can and must go forward with confidence. If you start determined to qualify for God's power of deliverance, not just in education but in all the trials of mortality, you will succeed. You will be strengthened. You will be guided around and through barriers. Help and comfort will come. Your faith in Heavenly Father and the Savior will be increased, and you will be strengthened to resist evil, and you will feel the gospel of Jesus Christ working in your life. And that brings us to the last, the third trial. All of us will at times struggle to feel free from the effects of sin. Only the Savior had the power to resist every temptation and never to sin. So the most important and most difficult trial for us all is to become clean and to know that we are. All of us yearn at times for the confidence that we will see the Lord's face as we will in the final judgment and see it with joy and pleasure. The purpose of our long discussion today about trials and what it takes to get the powers of deliverance was to give you and me hope for happiness and that day of judgment which will come for all of us. What it takes to qualify for the powers of deliverance in the trials of life also can qualify us for the assurance we need that we will have passed the ultimate test of mortality. We have seen that deliverance always requires humility before God. It takes submission to His will. It takes prayer and the willingness to obey. It takes serving others out of love for them and for the Savior. And it always requires and invites the Holy Ghost. As you are delivered in trials, the Holy Ghost comes to you. Many of you have felt the result of frequent contact with the Holy Ghost. It may have been in your missionary service. You needed deliverance many times. The Holy Ghost came to comfort and to guide you. And as that recurred again and again, you may have noticed a change come in yourselves. The temptations which once troubled you seemed to fade. People who once seemed difficult began to appear more lovable. You began to see almost 
unreasonable potential in very humble people. You came to care more about their happiness than about your own. If that change in you came, it was more likely gradual than sudden. Yet it was what the scriptures call the mighty change. And it is the evidence you and I need to give us hope and assurance as we look forward to the great and final test which comes after this life. Your experience in enduring well in the trials of life by drawing on God's power of deliverance can bring you the assurance you need to find peace in this life and confidence for the next. I bear you my solemn witness that God the Father lives and loves us. I know that. His plan of happiness is perfect, and it is a plan of happiness. Jesus Christ was resurrected as we will be. He suffered so that he could succor us in all our trials. He paid the ransom for all of our sins and those of all of Heavenly Father's children so that we could be delivered from death and sin. I know that in the Church of Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost can come to comfort and to cleanse us as we follow the Master. You have felt that influence today as I have. I testify that the keys of the priesthood were restored through the Prophet Joseph Smith. They are exercised today by President Gordon B. Hinckley. This is the true Church of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was The True Meaning of Easter, with thoughts from Michael L. Dunn and President Henry B. Eyring. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.